Well, welcome to the Nursing Standard Podcast. What a crazy world we're living in at the moment. So you're very welcome as perhaps a respite from the activities of daily living. And in fact, in today's edition, we're looking at well-being and self-care. So we'll be examining burnout and how you can identify that in yourself and other people. And we're looking at burnout as a spectrum. So I think you'll find that quite interesting. We're looking at mindfulness and then finally lecturer in sports therapy Dan Martin has got his hands full because he's going to try and teach me how to keep fit during these times so there's hopefully uh, a difficult one there but hopefully some top tips. Those who listen to the podcast know that I'm Richard Hatchett and I'm the senior nurse editor for Nursing Standard and RCNI and I'm a registered nurse and my background is cardiac and intensive care nursing. Normally, I'm joined by Flavia, the editor of Nursing Standard, but as you can probably gather, she's been pulled away onto other projects at the moment. So she's given me the keys to the podcast cupboard. So hopefully I'll do the programme justice. But I'm not alone. I'm joined by my good colleague, the man with a fabulous name, Mr. Jason Beckford-Ball. So Jason, how are you? Hi, everybody. Yeah, welcome. Good to be here. Well, good to have you, Jason. And actually, you trained a little bit after me. But when I trained all those years ago, your mental health wasn't really thought about. It was more a baptism by fire. You were dropped into it and told to get on with it, really. And if you survived and did well, you were a strong and a good nurse. And I wondered in your training whether mental health was thought about in the same light as, as my situation. Um, yeah, it's interesting, actually, because working in that field, you'd imagine that there would be a lot more care taken of the staff, um, but it didn't really feel that way at the time. I remember quite regularly, um, myself and other students or newly qualified nurses, it was quite common to be um, told off in front of the whole handover or disciplined in front of other people. Um, and there was quite a lot of... Uh, ex-army, ex-services, ex-prison officers, that kind of thing in, in, in the profession. So yeah, well-being wasn't a, um, a huge factor. And, and even the workplace kind of rules and regulations and stuff didn't really feed into that. I mean, you had, I, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but if someone didn't turn up for a shift and you were the nurse in charge, you just had to stay. Um, so yeah, uh, sometimes two or three shifts in a row even. So I'm not sure whether that's changed a lot. I hope it has. Um, but yeah, be interesting to see. Indeed. Well, that leads us nicely into our first guest, Dr. Daniel Madigan, who is a senior lecturer in performance psychology at York St. John University. And Daniel's also a member of the Motivation, Performance and Wellbeing Research Group at the university. Well, welcome, Daniel. I suppose the first question is, what actually is burnout? Yeah, so thank you very much, uh, Richard, and, and, and thanks for kind of giving me the opportunity to talk about this kind of important and pressing issue, uh, especially um, in context of the, the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, so, so the way we view burnout is, is that it's a, a psychosocial syndrome uh, that develops specifically in response to chronic stress that people experience. And so when we're talking about it as a syndrome, we're talking about uh, its symptoms so we're talking about three specific symptoms um so the first of these is is what we term a, a reduced professional efficacy and so th this is the idea that, that 
people kind of no longer feel like they're good at what they do. They no longer feel confident that they can uh, be effective in their jobs. They can't effectively get done what they want to get done. Um, so that's kind of the first symptom that, that we need to be aware of. And, and the second symptom is uh, a kind of increased level of cynicism. So cynicism normally directed towards the job itself. So individuals start to care less about whether their work is done well, whether it's done poorly. They, they, they develop the cynical attitude um, towards that kind of work they do, the environment that they find themselves in. Um, we also, we also the, the final and perhaps most kind of key symptom and probably the most recognizable when we talk about burnout is this idea of emotional exhaustion. So everything appears to be harder than it usually is. Uh, working feels like a strain. Working all day is much harder than it used to be. Um, so these these are our kind of three main symptoms that we talk about when we talk about burnout. Mm. And so well, one thing that's important to, to be aware of is, is that we don't necessarily talk about whether someone is burnt out or not. We talk about it kind of on a continuum of symptoms. So people kind of experience uh, low symptoms to, to all the way to high and more severe symptoms. And so we, when, we, when we're looking at, at burnout in this context, we, we think about how frequently people experience these symptoms. And the more frequently they experience them, the more likely they are to be suffering from burnout. Right. So you've touched on this, some of this already. Can we look at it from the individual perspective? And, you know, you've touched a little bit on that. If I said, how can staff identify burnout? You've identified three things, but expanding that a little bit, perhaps where they can go, uh, etc. And then move on to an organisational perspective, what the organisation, maybe the culture, the staff are doing to identify and support. So thinking from an individual perspective. Mm, yes, certainly. I, I think it's, it's the most important place to start for me is kind of to, to, to also think about the consequences of burnout, um, for, but specifically for nurses, but also people kind of in working situations, uh, those supporting nurse staff, those supporting doctors. Um, so, so there are a number of key uh, kind of consequences. Um, and that probably the most major is kind of a reduced well-being that can uh, occur as a consequence of, of burnout symptoms. And so we, we also know that it's kind of a, a a large amount of research suggesting that uh, a kind of quite a strong link to depression and depressive symptoms that can occur as a consequence of burnout. Um, we know that there is an increase in kind of potential for interpersonal problems, interpersonal conflict, um, this idea of kind of social disconnection, um, this idea we potentially feel less connected to others. Um, we know that that can then lead to kind of this idea of loneliness, um, which is only going to be exacerbated in this kind of situation we find ourselves in. Um, and in terms of what, um, thinking about how this might manifest for nurses at their jobs, um, we know that it increases absenteeism. Um, so they may be less likely to actually uh, turn up to, uh, to, to some of these roles. Um, and, and, and it can ultimately lead to, to nurses and other members of staff to, to actually leaving their jobs or leaving their profession um, in general. So, so there, are, there are quite kind of stark consequences that range from uh, kind of individual well-being all the way to um, kind of what the, the consequences are for them and their job. Um, so, so like, yeah, like you mentioned there, like it, it's kind of awareness that's the first key issue in terms of prevention and, and understanding this for individuals. So knowing what those symptoms are is, is, is an excellent first step. So 
those ideas, those symptoms of reduced efficacy, that cynical attitude that develops and the, the exhaustion. Um, so feeling more exhausted than uh, one might usually feel um, are definitely going to be kind of that first step to, to understanding uh, whether or not someone is, is experiencing the syndrome. Um, and I guess the next step then, if, if, if someone is, is worried they are experiencing these symptoms, is, is to, to seek help. Um, so, so to seek out the help of a mental health or well-being professional um, to kind of provide them with the support and care um, that would be required at that stage. Um, and so, so one, one thing I'll also add here is, is, is kind of this, the importance around overcoming potential mental health stigma in relation to burnout, because we, we know that stigma can be a significant barrier to help seeking. So those who um, yeah, feel a stigma towards mental health are less likely to actually help uh, seek mm-hmm. help when they experience these problems. And so, so kind of from an educational perspective, we need we need to make sure that most nurses are aware that this is not a weakness. This is not something um, they're showing it as a weakness. It's it's something that not that shouldn't be viewed by themselves or by, by other people as a weakness. Um, and it shouldn't be viewed negatively in that manner. Um, and instead, that we, we should be trying to support one another in these situations and, and kind of aiming towards uh, reducing those mental health stigma. Um, so that's kind of, that, that would kind of be my overall summary in terms of uh, from an individual perspective. Um, Can I just so, pick up on, um, you talked about cynicism. Mm. Um, how is that seen? And is, does that link to um, irritability? Um, because I sometimes find I'm not, uh, it's quite reassuring to hear there's a, a spectrum. I quite like that idea that rather than saying you're burnt out or you're not burnt out, you might be traveling in that direction, I suppose. Um, but this idea of cynicism, uh, can you just explore what, what examples that might be? And is that the same as being short tempered and irritated? I guess they're two different things. Mm, yeah. So, so I, I think from, from the burnout perspective, it's kind of important, important to differentiate the actual symptom itself from the consequences of the symptom. And so, um, yeah, so the cynical attitude is more in relation to their job. Um, um, And so it's kind of not really, no longer caring about performing well at their job role. No, really, not really. The cynicism is directed towards what they're doing in their their work. Um, Whereas one of the consequences, like you allude to there, is, is kind of a development of, interpersonal problems so so it might it might result in kind of being short uh with people um it, it can also affect communication so the way the ways in which people communicate um and again in in, in these um in these situations and circumstances where communication is is key uh in, in the nursing profession um especially in um yeah, the, the kind of intensive care or, or, or those situations, A&E situations, um, you can see how it can have direct consequences for the care that's being provided um, to people. Yeah, and from an organisational perspective, because they are within an organisation, what um, an organisation can do to um, uh, identify and to help, I suppose a lot of that is just expanding out from what you're talking about, really. Mm. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, the, the, the organisations and the way organisations organizations are structured is, is, is definitely key in, in kind of providing the grounds for which uh, burnout can develop, um, but also for 
the way in which the consequences can manifest. Um, so kind of like we were talking about there, if, if there are effects, uh, if burnout affects kind of decision making, um, there are definitely consequences for the performance of a team, um, perhaps even the performance of an organization, organization as a whole. Um, and so it, it's definitely worth considering how how the how workload is structured, how workload is is divvied out. Um, but kind of, yeah, that workload issue is definitely key in terms of the demands that are being placed on individuals. But I think what's important to note here is kind of that present in the present situation, um, the, the demands are, are definitely excessive, but they, in a lot of the cases, perhaps uh, necessary. And so we can kind of see that those demands being placed on nurses might make risk, risks to burnout almost inevitable as a consequence of the, the situations that, that people are working in at the moment. Um, and, and these risks kind of can be kind of compounded by uh, other expectations or demands placed on um, nurses. So for, so, for example, our group has done a lot of work on the role of perfectionism. Um, so not only kind of from an individual perspective, so the standards that they set for themselves, um, but also in context of um, perceptions that they they perceive other people to be particularly demanding. Um, so, for example, those those people that they work with those people that, that kind of provide um, the work context, if they are overly demanding of perfection or um, expect extremely and or excessive expectations. And also that we know that these things are tied with kind of um, criticality when these expectations are not met. Um, so we know that the, all of these things together from an organizational perspective can kind of lead to an increased risk uh, of burnout symptomology. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess from that perspective, it's, it's important for, for nurses working with other people to, to ensure that their kind of demands, their requests from other people are, um, shall we say, um, I don't know, uh, not excessive, but yeah, but it's essentially in line with what, what's capable of, of, of actually being done in those situations. Yeah. Great. Are there any final thoughts, Daniel, um, for those listening? I mean, we've touched a lot on um, uh, what the organisation, the individual can do research in this area, particularly because I know you're very at the forefront of looking at these issues. Mm. Yeah, again, again, I, I think it's just about reiterating that there is a definite increased risk for burnout symptomology in, in um, the present context. And being aware of those symptoms, so the reduced efficacy, the exhaustion, the cynicism, um, and, and ensuring that that kind of you you not only seek help from kind of your peers, um, but also offer help uh, to other people that you 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 may think are experiencing these problems, um, but also know that it is okay to seek help and, and that mental health professionals are there to support people, um, and this is this is. What they're here to do. This is what they um, they are trained to do. Uh, so that would probably be my kind of overarching overarching thought. That's brilliant, uh, Dr. Daniel Madigan. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you very much. Um, uh, my pleasure. So that was interesting, Jason. All about burnout. There, any thoughts on that? No, I think it's I think it's really good actually that. Um, that attention is being paid to something that didn't seem to be a massive part of uh, my, in particular, my nurse training and my um, 
life as a newly qualified staff nurse. So I think it's pretty positive. So let's take the burnout and stress issue a little further. And I'm joined online now by Dr. Caroline Barrett from the University of Essex. And Caroline is program lead for the MSc in health research and CPD lead. And we're looking at approaches to managing the whole issue of burnout and stress with a particular emphasis on Caroline's area of interest, which is mindfulness. So welcome, Caroline. What's your thoughts around this issue and particularly the role and benefits of mindfulness? Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you very much for having me um, on today. So my experience um, in this area relates to my the development of a course called Developing as a Compassionate Practitioner, where I started to look at how my interest um, in meditation and mindfulness could be brought into the education of health and social care professionals. And through doing that course, I've, I've gone through a lot of learning around you know, how we can help to reduce people's stress, how we can help people to cope day to day um, with the, the challenges that they're facing. And obviously, um, at the moment, things are particularly acute, especially for our health and social care professionals. Mm. Um, so a lot of what I, I teach about is around mindfulness. But obviously, this is just one approach um, to managing stress of many, and it may not suit everyone. The reason I think that mindfulness practice is particularly useful is that it can help create a sense of spaciousness, um, particularly within our thoughts, within the busyness of our minds, that is very helpful for helping us take time out um, and resting um, and getting away from those day-to-day -day worries that can encroach very quickly when we're in very stressful situations. So can you just go through, Caroline, what mindfulness is for those of us who've heard of it, but perhaps don't know a great deal about it and why particularly you're an advocate for mindfulness for um, healthcare professionals? Certainly. So there are a range of definitions of mindfulness and there's a lot of debate in the research literature about what it is. But a very a common way of understanding it is the idea of paying attention non-judgmentally in the present moment. And what this means is that being mindful is about taking time to be aware of our present circumstances without constantly judging, thinking, worrying um, about what's occurring, but just being present with what is there in our experience in that moment. And the reason this can be really helpful is because as human beings, we constantly get caught up in wanting things to be different from what they are. We might be doing the washing up, for example, and constantly thinking about, we might be worrying about what happened at work that day or looking forward to what's coming in the evening, but we're very rarely present with what's actually in front of us. And the difficulty of this is that even when we're doing things that are quite nice, like, I don't know, having our morning shower, for example, we can already be caught up in the stress and the worry of the day, even though those events haven't started happening. And physiologically, this puts a lot of pressure on the body because the body doesn't know whether we're actually being exposed to that stress or not. If we're thinking about it and we're worrying about it, the body is already wired for stress. And so when we're thinking about burnout, Burnout arises when we've been exposed to stress over a prolonged period and where we don't get the mental and physical break from that ongoing pressure. And so by being mindful 
we can actually be aware of when we're not under stress, when we're having a rest. And so we can create greater spaciousness that's actually very nurturing, both emotionally, mentally and physically. I mean, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I kind of recognise that, um, mm. exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered a number of points there. Well, yeah. you know, quite a number of points. One is, um, <laughs> can you do that alone without someone coaching or helping you do it? But secondly, mm-hmm. also, there is... For me, I feel like I'm in a therapy session with you now. But um, <laughs> is, is, are you able to... Um, there's a, there's a kind of comfort in the pain sometimes, isn't there? You know, I, I, I sort of think about all the things that are going to happen because I think somehow probably in a futile way that you can control it, that you can, but actually, as you said, you just make you, yourself do somersaults, etc. So I'm wondering how easy it is actually to achieve mindfulness and mm-hmm. do you need someone else to help you to do that? So when we talk about mindfulness, we often talk about mindfulness practice because Becoming more mindful is a constant practice, something that we have to be aware of and cultivate awareness of. Now, there are two forms of mindfulness practice, or they can be grouped in two ways. So on the one hand, we've got formal mindfulness practice, which people often associate with things like meditation. So for formal practice, we it requires you to kind of take time out of your day to go and sit somewhere a bit quiet. So you have to do something um, deliberate, if you like, that actually takes you out of the flow of your everyday life. Um, By contrast, informal mindfulness practice refers to small things that you can do within the flow of your everyday life to help to slowly introduce these moments of mindfulness, these pauses where we might take a breath and just become aware of our surroundings, allowing ourselves to drop out of the mental chatter and just give our mind just a few moments of, of rest. And when I teach mindfulness courses, I really emphasize the interplay of these two types of practice. So it can be quite hard to carve out these small moments if you haven't first started to experience the value of more formal mindfulness practices. So there's a definite interplay between taking the time out to do some meditation, for example, um, contrasted with finding moments to pause um, within your everyday life. Now, generally, I would advise people who are really wanting to explore mindfulness to engage in a course with with an experienced teacher, someone who has um, sort of practiced meditation and mindfulness for quite a long time themselves, because there's a lot of value that comes out of those practices that they, they will be able to share. Um, And particularly for people with um, underlying mental health issues um, or for whom they've experienced recent trauma, I would certainly say that um, engaging in long mindfulness practices or meditation, uh, for example, longer than, say, 10, 15 minutes, it's really wise to have um, someone teaching you, guiding you through the process, because Sometimes when we start to become quieter, when we start to really notice what's going on for us, sometimes that isn't always easy stuff. You know, you've already hinted at the fact that we sometimes don't quite know what's going on for us. And when we start to tap into that, it can be quite challenging. So sometimes some guidance is helpful. But there's also an awful lot of online resources and books that provide a great introduction that mean that a face to face course isn't necessarily essential to start. 
So what are the benefits that people are saying they're getting out of mindfulness? What does the research, for example, show um, as the benefits of this approach? Okay, so I think where we have the firmest evidence around the impact of mindfulness practice is around the impact of stress and redu reductions of stress and particularly um, improvements um, in mental health and anxiety. I think those are the key areas where where mindfulness is consistent, not, not in every study, but fairly consistently showing a picture that engaging in mindfulness practices um, can lead to benefits for individuals. Now we are seeing um, currently the, the research is developing to try and understand what is it about mindfulness that is causing um, impacts on, on stress, for example. And there's a few different theories out there. So one of the ways that it seems that mindfulness is affecting or helping to reduce people's stress is allowing them to gain a sense of perspective on their thoughts and their emotional experience. So what can happen when you engage in mindfulness practice is that you start to realise that your thoughts are just thoughts. Um, you can actually gain some spaciousness from them and start to see the world in a slightly different way. So instead of when we're in a stressful situation, we can it, it can feel incredibly personal, particularly if someone's giving us a hard time about something. Mm. Mindfulness can give us the ability to notice how we're responding to a situation without being quite so caught up in it. And that can be a very powerful thing for helping to alleviate stress. Another way that mindfulness can help is by encouraging people to develop a greater sense of embodiment and sen sensitivity to what's going on in the physical body. And very often when we get stressed, the first warning signs that something harmful is going on in the body can be through tension um, in, that can be held in the body. And very often we get very stuck in our minds. We're very mental creatures. And so being reconnected with the body, a greater sensitivity to what's going on can be very helpful um, to help us tap in um, to what's going on for us. Um, and the last area that I mean, there are many things I could talk about, but I think another thing, important thing to mention is that when we become more mindful and we're being able to be more present to what's going on, we can become less reactive in situations. And this can be very helpful, not only for making better decisions, but also for improving our relationships, for example. And for people working in highly pressured teams um, in the health and social care sector at the current time, being able to relate positively, calmly, constructively with colleagues and with patients is really important. And the reason this reactivity reduces is because when we're mindful, we can be aware that someone has, for example, hurt or upset us by something they've said, and we can choose to respond differently instead of just having knee-jerk reactions, which can sometimes be less than constructive, particularly uh, when we're under pressure. Mm, that's very interesting, Caroline. Any final thoughts before we leave you? I think one thing I'd really like to say, particularly at the current time, is that actually it's really important with mindfulness practice that it doesn't become one more thing that people are putting pressure on themselves to do at this difficult time. Yeah. If it feels like something that people want to engage with that they think may be useful for them, then I would really encourage them to do so. But this isn't about 
problem solving. It's not about becoming a better person or self-development. And so particularly at times of stress, we need to identify things that also bring us comfort, that nurture us, that allow us to rest. And for a lot of people, that might not be mindfulness at the moment. It might be curling up and watching their favourite TV programme, calling a friend and um, going for a run. Um, but I hope that for some people that these ideas will, will be useful. But I certainly don't want it to become another thing that people feel bad for not doing. Dr Caroline Barrett from the University of Essex, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So that was interesting, Jason. What do you think about that mindfulness? Uh, yeah, that sounds really useful. And I particularly like the way that there's lots of different ways that you can apply it. So you can do it on your own, you can do it in a group or from, mm. um, in books. Or So I think that's really useful, yeah, from a day-to-day -day point of view. Keeping fit both physically and mentally is a clear challenge for nurses and all the work that we do. And of course, it goes without saying at this challenging time. And my next guest, Dan Martin, who's a lecturer in sports therapy and a chartered physiotherapist at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, is here to discuss how nurses and other healthcare professionals may be able to maintain fitness at this time. So welcome, Dan. Do you think we should put our New Year's resolution to keep fit on hold at this time? <laughs> I think, Richard, uh, now is a great time to potentially get fit. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities out there at the moment. Obviously, it is a challenging time, and I'm sure people will be feeling potentially a little bit fearful and stressed. Mm. But actually, that's just one of the many reasons to actually start um, undertaking an exercise program and developing some habits around that. I mean, what I suppose the question is, what do we mean by fit? Is it fitter? Because fitness is, is a bit subjective, isn't it? What are you thinking of when people get fitter? Well, I think all of us have a certain level of fitness and everybody will be individual from that perspective. I think, uh, like you alluded to, our challenge is to actually try and change our makeup a little bit from a physical point of view. And from that perspective, what we're looking to do is actually improve our immune system, try and generate a little bit of endorphin release, try and improve our cardiovascular system a little bit. And some of that can be just getting a little bit more active. And I think one of the things that particularly the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy is very um, pro is looking to get encourage people to be active because that just has so many benefits from a, a physical perspective. So you've got people who are, um, well, have a lot of challenges put on at the moment. They may be schooling their children at home. Um, they may be worried about work. They may be thinking, when am I going to get down the shops, etc. So there's a lot of challenges. But there is a lot of time, as we were saying off recording, when they are at home and things. Is this challenging time an opportunity to reflect and perhaps open up the doors to seeing where you can fit fitness in? Yeah, I think I think there will be opportunities there, as I mentioned, and I think you know you've got to look for those opportunities. Some some families may well be stretched at this point. I know, I know a friend of mine who's um, working in social care. He 
he kind of looks after that in the South Wales region and his wife's a nursing critical care so that they're, they're a stretched family but chatting to him the other day what he was talking about was incorporating exercise in between waking the kids up and making their breakfast so managing to get a few exercises or a few stretches in um, in between those gaps and I think it's it's trying to fit in opportunities in and around that other people might well have slightly more time on their hands and maybe we'll be able to look at some of the online resources that are available um, on various websites um, to maybe develop new skills, maybe look at different types of exercise, things like yoga, um, Pilates, um, look at some calisthenic type exercise that they could potentially um, start and um, improve on. So there's almost a, um, is that morphing into a physical fitness and a mental fitness because yoga I, I, I may be wrong I associate with relaxation and rather than um, uh, hard exercise of, of I don't know lifting weights or, or uh, running on the spot etc so fitness is both mental and physical yeah definitely and I think um, the the aspects in relation to physical and mental fitness are um, you know associated probably with the World Health Organization's view which is uh, kind of looking at five times 30 minutes cardiovascular exercise and two lots of 15 minutes resistance exercise and and that's kind of what people maybe perceive as fitness from that that perspective but mm. I think that the kind of holistic view and, and, and the view that is is becoming more apparent um, over recent years is that actually people can get their fitness through a variety of means and and as we mentioned there there's a few options in relation to you know different types of stretching um, those type of things you know are really useful at actually enabling um, improvement from a physical and, and mental point of view um, so I think I think there's plenty of options there um, around, um, you know, you might even want to take up a Joe Wicks workout, Richard. Hmm, maybe. The, um, moving on. <laughs> the other thing is, do you think there are, um, one's not looking necessarily to advertise, but are there some um, online resources that are better than others, um, shorter programs, longer programs? How do you know what, what is necessarily right for you? Is that just something that you have a gut feeling for? I think you can go to some some of the main sort of um, uh, professional bodies. So the Chartered Society does have some videos around some right. exercises um, that you could potentially look at, um, and they're they're free to free to view and free to access. Again, the NHS actually has some good websites that are available and some good exercise programs. I, I have another patient that um, actually. Uh, pointed me towards some of the Pilates exercises. So for somebody that's maybe just looking to get into a little bit more activity and maybe a different type of activity, there's some beginner sessions on the NHS website. So I think there's um, some of the bigger websites are there. I think if you go on to, you know, obviously the big wide uh, sort of YouTube type forums, mm. um, the variety of, of sort of material is going to be quite, quite
quite vast. So um, I think probably stick to professional bodies, um, websites and, and sort of main, um, main areas from that perspective. Mm. Do you think you need to set personal goals? Is that uh, over egging the pudding? Do you think you need goals that uh, I was, I was worried that people set goals and then get disappointed when they don't make them a, do you need to set personal goals and should they be flexible or would you just focus on it, on uh, what you're going to do that day? Is, is, is personal goals a, a red herring? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. I think a lot of people do focus on, right, I have to achieve this, and, and they have a specific outline of what they want to do. Um, and they're like, I'm going to achieve this in you know four weeks or five weeks. Mm. I think personally that, that that is fraught with long-term issues. And I think uh, in my experience over sort of 20 years of dealing with people with, in relation to exercise, I've always given patients generally a couple of exercises and allowed them to build on that. And I think that's a pretty good principle. If you if you give people um, a little bit of exercise and, and you encourage people to develop good habits in relation to activity, then they can kind of be uh, bedded in and uh, utilised long term. Whereas I think you know sometimes if we're if we're quite prescriptive and if we kind of um, have these goals, sometimes we get um, we can get a little bit too focused on that. So I think uh, my perspective on this is that I think it's it's better that we we kind of try and generate a culture, a healthy, mm. active culture, and uh, that ultimately involves you know telling people that maybe you're doing a little bit of exercise at the moment, ask somebody else, are you keeping fit? Um, I think those type of things help promote um, that healthy culture and develop these habits. Yeah, and as a final point, once we've moved beyond this um, dreadful time at the moment, is there a, um, a place for personal trainers and joining groups and those sorts of things? As you said, that almost the motivation and the culture, etc. is this um, something that people should carry on doing on their own is that is the, once they get back into the big wide world how do they keep it going yeah I think there are lots of areas out there that are currently doing things online in relation to gyms are actually uh, doing online sessions and trying to encourage people maybe through zoom and another modality other sort of video modalities trying to encourage people to um, stay stay in touch from that perspective and develop that sort of culture. I think if you're that type of person, then that is something that you may well want to do and have a level of accountability from that perspective. I know some people do value that and and that's maybe something that down the line that people might look to invest in. But I think I think if you can kind of develop some of these habits and some of these traits from a physical activity perspective, whether that be going for a walk, whether that be going for a jog, whether that be doing some stretching, calisthenics, some kind of circuit circuit activity, whatever you've started to do during this time, then I think there's lots of options to kind of develop on that in the longer term. Great. Dan, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much. My goodness, Jason, that takes your breath away. Any final Ooh. thoughts there? I know, I know. Whoa. Well, 
Yeah. <laughs> already. I know, I know. So any final comments on well-being and self-care? Yeah, I mean, um, particularly at the moment uh, with the lockdown we're going through, I mean, it's these things are just priceless, aren't they? So useful for, you know, uh, morale, fitness, um, mental well-being, all, all of those things. I mean, if you've got these kind of techniques to use, um, it's really great. So, yeah, I think it's been really useful. And it's been great having you with us, Jason. Thank you so of much. Of course. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, you can get more resources associated with the topic at rcni.com forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up on the episodes so far. And do remember, we're also on Apple and Spotify podcasts if you want to leave a review. And join us on Twitter, of course, at Nurse Standard. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time and take care. Thank you.